When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Fright School. Are you ready? Class is in session. Hello and welcome back to Fright School. Hello, Joe. Hi, Joshua. Joe, do you want to introduce our very special guest? Yes, I would be happy to. So we're Fright School in the West Craven Memorial Bookmobile. Bookmobile. Bookmobile <laughs> Library Bookmobile. And um, we are sitting down today um, in his lovely home with a preeminent filmmaker, horror queer icon, legendary. I, I'm adding just everything. Um, <laughs> future legendary future children. Future legendary children. Um, we're sitting down with uh, Michael Verratti. Well, thank you for having me. What a lovely introduction, right? <laughs> right. We we you know we try to we try to you know really lead with lead with love. Lead with love. Yeah, <laughs> that's well, what this definitely. horror podcast yeah. is about, right? Well, now yeah. I have to live up to all those superlatives. I'm <laughs> nervous. <laughs> ah, yes. Well, we are so excited to have you uh, here today. We're going to discuss lots of horror stuff. Um, but first, any anybody watching or reading or see anything this week that's... Well, besides Satanic Panic. That's right. We which, did watch Satanic Panic. Chelsea which you can Stardust. listen to our recap on that and listen to Chelsea's episodes too. Uh, but Michael, anything? Well, I too enjoyed Satanic Panic. I urge listeners to... Uh, Order a pizza and check it out. <laughs> yes, which we didn't order a pizza, but we did have a banana cream pie. So, But it's forgiven if you didn't know. If you haven't seen the movie yet, you may not know why a pizza is so exactly. crucial to the film. Yeah. And, and to make sure to tip, tip your pizza delivery person. So. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> as of recently, I... Um, well, I just saw Idle Hands again for the first time in a while last night. I was uh, lucky enough to host the 20th anniversary uh, screening via Rooftop Cinema Club here in L.A., and I did a talk back with some of the film stars and the director. Uh, but, yeah, in terms of the most recent horror movie I watched, uh, it was that, and it was so cool to revisit. It had such a punk rock spirit, and it's cool to see uh, this 1999 movie with that kind of splatstick sensibility uh, and in a way, I almost felt like you can see, you know, the early horror movies of the or the early 2000s, like Shaun of the Dead, that leaned into that comedy sort of being set up by that. Uh, I recently finished reading um, Horror Story by Gr- Grady Hendrix, which I really liked. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm currently in the middle of Alice Isn't Dead, the novelization of the, the podcast by the same name by Joseph Fink, who also created Welcome to Night Vale. Uh, I'm always watching stuff. Oh, and last night, uh, or two nights ago, I watched Pure, the brand new uh, yes. Into the Dark movie. We were just talking about that. How, what did you think of it? Because we haven't seen it yet, but I wanted to watch it just based on the description. I'm like, oh, this sounds... <laughs> I liked it. I, honestly, yeah. I really think it's very uh, contemplative and, th- and thoughtful horror. I mean, it's 
very visceral as well. Mm -hmm. But what I liked about it is it really takes on patriarchy in all of its forms. uh, And it was kind of badass to watch this movie really kind of tackle that head on. Because to me, that's, that's what horror, when it's at its best, does. It tackles issues that sometimes we're too nervous to talk about. So. Huh. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I really have enjoyed their Into the Dark series for the most part. Like, there hasn't been too many, like, misses. Like, even the ones that I was like, well, this wasn't great, but it wasn't bad either. You know, that I just have really enjoyed their uh, their series. Yeah, I really, yeah, same. I've, I've really enjoyed, uh, as someone who, you know, I guess that's my role is, like, I'm the I'm the newbie. You know, <laughs> I, I'm, just, I'm sitting there and I'm just like, I really enjoy this. And, um... Uh, one other film I'll bring up is I recently watched Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Oh. And I thought it was, I, let's just put it this way. If I was a kid that watched that at the age where I think it's targeted to, I would be scared on my mind. I thought it was pretty, I thought it was pretty terrifying thinking about it from that point of view. Um, it would have been interesting to see if they had done it as a, just an anthology film and just had every, you know, just had the story. Oh, just did like thing. story yeah. kind of episodic. Because like, you know, they're, uh, they're setting it up to be this, like they're setting up a sequel, they're setting up a franchise, I feel, the same way that I thought Escape Room did. Like I thought Escape Room also really set up uh, like a, it to be like the next Final Destination. Right. But I feel like with this one, it's the story works and then doesn't in, in some parts, but it would have been interesting to see it as just individual whole stories without this larger narrative. Although I am interested in this notion that we see both with scary stories to tell in the dark and uh, in a different way, the Goosebumps movie from a few years ago, the idea of the focal point being stories about stories and the idea Mm -hmm. that we uh, are enraptured and and, and bought in and, and just kind of that reverence to storytelling and the nostalgia and the power that that has. I mean, obviously scary stories to tell in the dark and goosebumps are both like known quantities and properties within uh, the world of horror as well as children's literature. But it's the nostalgia of that and what that means when stories kind of burrow in early and always stay with us. And I think that's really cool that both of these, uh, these film versions thought to approach it in that meta way because that's kind of a lot deeper than I would expect from a children's film. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing it because it was just such a big part of like growing up. You know, we've talked about that on the show uh, several times with several different people. Did you, um, was that something that you grew up reading? Did you read those books as a kid? Uh, so I am just kind of right at the, the age range where when I was a teenager and, and reading things is, I was like a preteen when Goosebumps started coming out. So I was okay. already too old for Goosebumps, but I had been a fan of the Fear Street books that Arl Stein wrote. Yeah. And by the time Goosebumps hit, I was already reading Stephen King, but I had such kind of a hunger for horror stories that I still read the Goosebumps books anyway. Yeah. And I didn't necessarily find myself kind of, uh horrified in any way but I got what he was doing and I really dug that kind of approach and as for scary stories to tell in the dark um, I 
was not as firmly invested in those as I was like Stein or King or Christopher Pike or some mm-hmm. of those that I was reading at the time. But I do remember in fifth grade, I had, my fifth grade teacher, Dr. Say, probably never thought I'd get shouted out on a poor podcast. <laughs> uh, That's awesome. But in October, he read us a story from one of those books. Uh, and it, that story was Harold about the, the flesh-eating scarecrow. Yeah. And it scared the shit out of me. And I like, uh, I remember thinking, oh my God, I don't want to read this book. Uh, and I don't want to hear these stories ever again. Um, and of course, you know, within a couple of years, I, I was all about it, but, um, it is, it's that impact. It's that, like that imprint of childhood. Like when one story hits the right way, I, I thought about that scarecrow eating people or tanning their flesh or whatever. Well, yeah. Right. Yeah, like the yeah. last line is like, it's stretched like a, a bloody skin in the sunlight or something. Yeah. I mean, it's just so visceral, like the image of, you know, the, that. and I thought about that probably every night before bed for a week. Yeah. yeah. Ooh. <laughs> on top of it being like a really creepy image. Cause I think yeah. that's what sticks with me the most. It's not that even that the stories were that scary. I don't even remember. I mean, yeah, I probably started reading them at nine or 10, but I actually read very inappropriate. I started reading really, really early. And my mom, she had me when she was a teenager and just total inappropriate sense of like, <laughs> you know, she was big into horror. So we watched tons of horror. I grew up on it, you know? So I think one of the earliest books I ever read was Gerald's game by Stephen King. Oh my God. Wow. I know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's like those, like my whole sense of like what's scary and what's not was really warm. So it was just fun to like share, read those to my brothers and sisters. But what what really you read stuck Gerald's game to your brothers and no, sisters? No, 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 no. Oh, sorry, okay. scary stories to tell in the dark. Oh, okay. No, 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 no. But it, when I got <laughs> older, I was like, Mom, version. Mom, I yeah, can't exactly. believe you let me read this book as a kid, you know? <laughs> like it's really messed up. Like, you know, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the Netflix adaptation of it, which wasn't bad, actually. I liked it. Yeah, 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 they did a good job, but like it was I mean, just a fraction of like what's in the book, you know, what's described in the book. Yeah. Uh, but I just remember the um, artwork being what really stuck with me. And I'm still really drawn to stuff like that. You know, that's sort of the wash of it and, you know, just how really surrealist and creepy, you know, the illustrations were. That's, that's no, really what sticks they were very... Memorable artworks. Yeah. For sure. And I found a lot of them way creepier, you know, like before I think... I can't remember if I saw... No, I think I, I think I read those books before I saw Halloween, but the woman, there's like a picture of a woman with her eyes are all black with a white face and that stuck with me. And then Michael Myers and then later with like, um, Juwan and like the, their, their use of like the white face with really dark eyes always has freaked me out. Mm. I think centered from that book and being really just disturbed by that image of that woman. Um, so speaking of childhood, where did you grow up? Uh, well, to quote the great Nomi Malone, uh, I grew up in different <laughs> places. Uh, my parents were uh, were and are both uh, lifelong educators. They're now doctors of education. Okay. And uh, they were always very interested in, you know, furthering their education and their careers and their ability to aid students uh, in, in the learning process. And in the 70s, when they got married, my dad had read about... Uh, the lack of, of proper education for uh, native students in our country. Mm-hmm. And he and my mom had just finished school and they... Native by, like, indigenous? Yeah, na- okay, yeah okay. Native Americans. Okay. Uh, and they, uh, they packed up the car and they moved from western Pennsylvania to a Navajo reservation in Arizona uh, in a town called Ganado. And that's where they got their first jobs in public school system. My dad, I think, started as a guidance counselor. My mom was a teacher. And uh, eventually my dad became a principal of that school. And he wrote a lot about, you know, uh, bringing education and restructuring the education system uh, in that school district. And while they were living there, uh, that's when I came along. And I was born in the lo- the nearest hospital, which was a state over in New Mexico. Oh, so I was wow. born in Gallup, 
New Mexico. And so my starting point was the Southwest. And my first few years were spent on a Navajo reservation. And then uh, as they kept progressing in their careers, we moved every so often. And uh, they went from Arizona to Colorado, which is where I was in elementary school. And then uh, back to Pennsylvania, but not the area that they were from. Uh, And my dad became a, a superintendent in that area. And I went to high school in Western Pennsylvania. Now they're both doctors of education. They were at the kind of forefront of cyber education. My mom, uh, for a, a long time, was in curriculum development where she taught teachers how to be better teachers. Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, so I moved a lot growing up. I don't necessarily feel like I have a, like, hometown. There are places I relate to more than. Uh, but... I don't necessarily miss the idea of having a hometown. I've have been asked this before, and and the idea is that I felt like I kind of was on an adventure growing mm-hmm. up, mm-hmm. and I got to meet a lot of people and learn a lot of things about different places and different cultures and different lifestyles that I don't know that I would have gotten if I had only ever been in small town Pennsylvania yeah. or rural Ohio, and um, <laughs> yeah, I was always reading uh, and uh, watching movies and those were kind of like my friends. I had friends. I was not like like a lonely kid but like when you move a lot like you leave yeah. friends behind you gain new ones. Uh, and I I don't know. It was a big adventure and like uh, my parents and I uh, were, were kind of road warriors and I don't know. I, 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 I'm very grateful for the childhood that I had and the things that I saw and the things that I learned. Um, and the, the only thing that it has left me, though, is occasionally restless. Like, I, I will be somewhere, and I'm like, I wonder, I wonder <laughs> if I lived somewhere else. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is so interesting, because that seems to go against, like, what most people that have that kind of childhood, they search for, like, that stability. Yeah. But because for you, it was such a, a positive experience, rather than always being uprooted and yeah. being dragged. No, I mean, I, I think I'm firmly planted in Los Angeles, and I yeah, love yeah. it here. And it's not just because of my work. There's something about this city that I like, and I think mm-hmm. maybe it's because we are a city, by and large, of other travelers. Yeah. A lot of people who come here have have come from other places. And maybe it's the first big move they've ever made or maybe it's, you know, one of many, but there yeah. is that sort of migratory experience that happens here. I mean, it is it is a long-standing joke much to their chagrin that when you meet someone from actually who actually is from Los Angeles, it's a shock, but uh it's true. There are so many people who, who uh, have come here that it is it is becoming an increasing rarity to meet a native Angelino. So. Well, yeah, that's very true for San Diego, too. I always think I had a driver the other day who was native San Diego. It's so funny, you know, because everybody I know, yeah, is from Ohio and was West saying, Virginia. A lot of people Kentucky from Ohio. And, yeah, everybody, like, gets up and moves, you know. Um, wow, that's very, that's very interesting. I think you're the first person who didn't have, like, that hometown, you know, kind of like where they grew up. I mean, we moved around a lot, but we stayed in Ohio. Mm -hmm. So like I went to 13 different high schools and, you know, we bounced around a lot. But Oh, where in Ohio? um, I'm from Cincinnati originally. And then we... I went to Kent, so... Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so we were all over the place and moved a lot, but not... You know, I wish it had been like, um, like mermaids were shared just like through like <laughs> points in a place. Like, I wish my mom would have like left Ohio. We moved around a lot more, but um, yeah, we did that. So my, I mean, yeah, I, same. I had friends, but I always think like the library was the constant. We'd move into a new town. That's the first thing I would find. Like, mm-hmm. where's the library? And get like my my mom always signed over the like restricted. Like you had to get like a you know if you wanted to right. t- check out adult materials. So that was always the first thing I did was gotta get to the library because <laughs> that was always a check constant out friend. Gerald's game and right. I, don't know. <laughs> I love. What's the, the new Stephen King book? I mean, honestly, shout out to libraries and librarians. They uh, they kind of keep the the 
the punk spirit alive, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they do. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, yeah, you ask them. So, I mean, yeah, exactly. That's why I just always loved being, I never had like a bad experience that I can remember of like a library and it was always like, oh yeah, sure, that book's over here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody posted today that they wish libraries were open at night so that you had a choice other than a bar or like staying at home, like you just go and hang out at the library with yeah, people. No, I'm like, that's kind of an interesting that idea. Was Mixers. The, <laughs> the one thing about uh, university life is that our library mm-hmm. was open, yeah. I think pretty much 24 hours that, or at least yeah. late and then during finals time it was 24 hours, but that makes sense. Yeah, where did you go to university? Uh, Kent State Kent. University. In ah, Kent State, yeah. That's, yeah. That's awesome. Um, so then what's your earliest uh, like memory of horror? What was like the first horror movie that you saw maybe on accident or, you know, kind of however that happened? Do you remember? Uh, yes, I do very much. Uh, notoriously, up until this moment that I'm about to share... Uh, in my life, I was what would be referred to as a scaredy cat. I was like a textbook <laughs> afraid little kid uh, to like a, a detrimental degree. Like I, I, anything that I thought was relatively spooky, I didn't like it. Uh, my parents will tell stories about how if the music would shift like to anything slightly more suspenseful or dramatic, I would run over and turn off the TV because I didn't want to see anything <laughs> scary. And, I, you know, I would catch glimpses of things and, like, kids at school would, like, you know, tell me about movies that they were watching. Yeah. Uh, and I, I did everything in my power to avoid them, uh, like the plague. And I think what's interesting is, like, over the course of my career, I've interviewed a lot of creators in the world of horror. And that's not all that uncommon. I think a lot of people start afraid and then you become kind of obsessed with what you're afraid of. And then all of a sudden you find yourself like thinking about it way more than you should. And then you kind of want to know more about it. Um, And uh, it's interesting. I kind of started to be interested in horror movies and horror stories, but was kind of always keeping them at an arm's distance. And then one day I was reading the TV guide and there was this program that used to be on in the late 80s, early 90s called USA Up All Night Mm, uh, that would be on on Fridays and Saturday nights. Uh, And on Friday night it was hosted by a woman named Rhonda Shear. And what they would do is they would show cult movies and horror movies and bizarre B cuts that necessarily were like not your, your... mainstream kind of cinema. And uh, you had Rhonda along with you for the ride. She was sort of like uh, her own kind of Elvira. Didn't they like book or whatever? They would kind of like show the movie, but there would be interstitials with them or something. She would introduce the film. And then like when we, they would do the bumpers, like when we would come back from commercial before the movie would start, she'd say something like, this is your video fix and Rhonda Sheer and blah, 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 blah. And she would talk about meatballs four or whatever the fuck it was. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, I, I realize I'm swearing a lot. Is that a oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah, absolutely. Um, we don't I, give a fuck. It's fine. I, <laughs> I, I, I realize coming from Dead for Filth that it's just like my mode, and then I'm like, maybe I should check. Uh, oh, yeah, but, you're fine. Yeah, so Rhonda was hosting a, uh, a double bill of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and Return of the Killer Tomatoes, and I remember <laughs> seeing that in the TV guide, and these titles were just like, what is that? Killer tomatoes. How how can a tomato be killer? <laughs> and I I led like a mini petition crusade. I was like, Mom, 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 we're gonna watch this. I need to see this. I wanna know. I wanna know what these tomatoes are all about. And my mom, having dealt with like, you know, four or five years of at this point of me like freaking out and running out over and turning off the TV, was very skeptical, but like in a in a move of like good parenting and growth, she was like, Okay, I'm gonna let you watch this, but 
I'm going to, I'm going to stay up and watch it with you. And like, you know, it's Friday night and I'm like seven or six or whatever. So it's like, it's not like I'm going out clubbing or anything. Right. So like <laughs> this, this was the big Friday night plan Yeah. and she made popcorn and it's up all night. So it starts a little bit later in the evening. She, she made popcorn she sits on the couch. I remember I was like sitting on the floor watching as this started and like maybe 15 minutes into the movie, uh, my mom passes out. She like just fell asleep. Uh, so like a lot of good there uh, protecting me from, <laughs> but, um, from the impending vegetable or fruit uh, attack. <laughs> so I was watching these movies essentially solo with Sleeping Mom in the background, but I was immediately taken in. And uh, I, I obsessed about it. I, I, I You know, because how Up All Night did it was they would show the first movie and then they would show the second movie and then Rhonda would bounce and then they would just, for programming, show the first and second movie back to back to back to morning or until infomercials came yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I must have watched both of those movies at least twice through that night. And... Uh, by morning, by sunup, it was like, a, it was a brand new world. And uh, I realize, of course, for listeners, they'd be like, that's not a horror movie, though. It's not. It's a horror comedy, yes. And it, like, is obviously satirizing things like the birds and killer animal films. But it was unlike anything I had ever seen. And I always give it credit as the first horror movie and the turning point because not just was I fascinated by these killer tomatoes, there was this realization that I had, and I remember very early on, uh, it, it was it was what changed everything was the idea, this is not the kind of movies that they're showing at the multiplex. Mm-hmm. These mm-hmm. are not the movies that when my mom and dad and I go to the movies that I'm seeing. I'm not seeing these films advertised. So that must mean there is this whole world of movies that exists that I don't know about. And I want to know what those are. And I loved the idea that there was this underground of things that like maybe were a little naughty or a little forbidden or like, you know, were outside of what we were told we should watch. I wanted to know everything about those. And from that point on, it was just sort of like onward into this world of the bizarre and the strange. And yeah, I, I, I think that there were other factors. Stephen King, of course, coming of age during the time of when King was at like the height of his powers. Yeah. I've read a lot of those books. And as a reader, I like devoured them. There were so I, I probably read, you know, 15, 20 King books back to back, some of which I would have to maybe even reread now as an adult because I read them in such quick succession. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then um, when X-Files dropped in 93, I was I watched the night that it, it aired and uh, the pilot and I stuck with it probably far longer than a lot of people did because <laughs> I, I loved the idea of uh, the atmosphere that the show curated. Mm-hmm. But yeah, up all night. I Once uh, I hit that, I, I kept coming back and I saw so many horror films for the first time on USA Up All Night. Um, Night of the Creeps, you know, the Friday the 13th <laughs> movies, the Creeps. Uh, Monster Squad, I, I, like so many things. And then like, you know, the sexploitation films and uh, just the bizarre random stuff that they would show. And it was great. I felt like it, it was my secret because I would go to school and I'd be like, hey, I saw this movie called The Stuff and it's about yogurt that eats people. And people are like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. That like, sounds like how I describe a lot of like when I was like, what is like, oh, what did you do over the weekend? Well, I watched this movie. It was called Dumplings. And it's about a woman who's feeding another woman you know, dumplings, <laughs> but they're not dumplings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
but yeah, so that's it. I owe I owe Killer Tomatoes and Ronda Shear a great debt of honor. And honestly, anytime uh, I talk about my biography, I, I bring up both of those things. And I have been very fortunate in my career. I've met John DeBello, who created Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, and um, he's probably the only filmmaker that I ever really like nerded out on for that reason. And uh, Rhonda Shear and I uh, have have run across each other a number of times, and we correspond every so often. And she's cool. Uh, she lives in Florida, and now she runs a lingerie line. Uh, <laughs> yes. And uh, yeah, it's just cool. Uh, you know, I I remember that very vividly, and um, it was it was so important to me to discover that there's more than one kind of art. Because I guess when you're a little kid, you don't think about it. You yeah, have to have that like shoved in your face or like have that the realization of it, yeah. and if like little killer tomatoes were the gateway then great yeah. yeah 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 so often on the show we talk about um this idea as horror is heirloom so yeah. like it's given to you by a family member at a slumber party because they're trying to you know freak you out or whatever um and it's interesting because like we have we've talked with a few people now where it's uh an independent discovery where it was just like something caught their eye and here it is. And so it's, it's always nice to know that, um, that that happens because that's, you know, that's how naturally curious little children, you know, come across these things and end up becoming lifelong bands. Yeah. And what's funny is like my parents aren't squares at all. Like my, Mm -hmm. my mom really likes kind of edgy material. And uh, when I was growing up, I, the joke was always that her music collection was always cooler than mine. Cause I'd be like, (laughs) Oh my God, the new Mariah Carey. And she'd be like, no, I was watching this tool music video and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Oh wow. But um, she, she digs horror now. Uh, And I I suspect that she always kind of liked it, but uh, it is funny, you know, when we talk about the things that are passed on to us by our parents. But I think that when you have an open dialogue uh, with your family, you pass things back up to them. Mm. And like my mom is now a horror fan and uh, keeps up with stuff. And uh, she watches movies and goes to the theater to see horror films that sometimes I don't even see before yeah. she does. And uh, I don't know that that was always the case, but she just was kind of like into it because. I, I was always watching them, and she would sit down and be like, which one's this? And I'd be like, oh, okay, well, this is Halloween 4, and, you know, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is gone, but her daughter's here, and blah, 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 and she's like, okay, 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 cool, got it. And then, like, that, that would just be, you know. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I'm still trying to get my mom to watch something, so I'm hoping that... <laughs> I'm hoping that with, I have my, my sister, my brother-in-law, my brother-in-law is a, fan, a horror fan, so I'm hoping that we can A, get her to finish Sixth Sense, right. or B, get her to watch um, the It remake. What you need is a yeah. gateway horror that is like tailored to a mom. And by that I mean like the final girls. Which uh, is all about yes. the relationship between like kids and their mom, or something like that. Something that like at the end should be like See? so, like hereditary. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yes, so, like, you should a quiet show place. Your mom. Yeah. You know, just like Rosemary's Baby. What's the one with Ginger Snaps? Ginger where the snaps mom's like the awesome mom, in the end. Which like <laughs> got your fingers. She Mimi Rogers looks almost exactly like my mom. Like I remember watching Lost in Space, and I was like, <laughs> "Is that my mom?" I was like, I was like very, very in, invested in her in her in her story. So when we watched Ginger Snaps, I was like, oh, but see, my mom would not wear like a turtleneck under a sweater and a jean jacket. And I'm, I'm still can't get over the fashion. But. I know. He went on and on about that. This is a damn just, turtleneck. <laughs> it's Canada. It, 
that's what the said, thing. Like it's Canada. Cold, so, yeah. Joe. It's all you right. have to have requisite hockey <laughs> and Canada. Uh, uh, somewhere in here, there's like a really good joke about heirloom tomatoes, but yeah, I can't uh, come up with. We'll, it, so. we'll, we'll figure it <laughs> out. Someone, figure it out. someone on the internet uh, will shoe, shoehorn it in later. What is uh, going on here? Something went out. I think it's the. Uh, you good? Yeah, there okay. I am. <laughs> I'll mark this to be removed later. <laughs> As I fiddle with it. So, all right. So, yes, yeah, so we turn the uh, question that you always ask on Dead for Filth uh, to you. Like, why horror? Why do you think we make horror? <laughs> uh, honestly, I think, and thank you, I rarely get asked this question myself. <laughs> um, why horror? I mean, of course, the easy answer is why not? But I think it's bigger yeah. than that. Um, I've talked about this a little bit off and on over the course of my show, but also just my interest in genre. And I've always believed that horror, when done well, can be the most powerful of genres. Yeah. Because horror, by its very definition, is a genre of subversion and a genre of otherness. And I think that when you take that into account, horror can be utilized and manipulated to confront issues that in the world we may not be ready to confront with like a straight lens. By that I mean it's like we maybe don't want to tackle this head on. But if you take that issue and you embody it as a monster or something that the audience can tangibly wrap its mind around for 90 minutes and and then vanquish that that fear for a while then maybe it prompts the discussion and it's sort of like horror has always been that powerful uh you know when you it it, it precludes cinema even when mary shelley wrote frankenstein the debate was raging at the time between God versus science, the idea that emerging scientific thought was an affront to the church. So what does she do? She writes one of the single greatest novels of all time about the idea of what happens when man plays God. Uh, When America drops atomic weapons on Japan, and Japan, you know, obviously, understatement of ever is is devastated by this, but Godzilla is born out of that as as sort of a, a... a totem of, of, of what this monstrous act looks like through a fantastic lens. Uh, if we look at the Bush administration and how uh, in the news, Middle East, the Middle East and torture was in the news a lot during that time period, uh, the idea of you know Abu Ghraib was in the news and, and things like that, and that saw, saw and hostile come yeah. out at that time, that's not a mistake. And now... A lot of the horror movies that we see coming out, Hereditary, the new version of Suspiria, even how Halloween tackled the idea of generational trauma, it's all about this notion of dealing with the trauma of what we have done and what we are doing to ourselves. And I don't think in Donald Trump's America, the idea that trauma is so firmly rooted in our horror is a mistake. Right. And so to me, why horror? Because... Horror is the means by which we can use fear to heal ourselves. Wes Craven has all had said, you know, we don't watch horror movies for fear, we watch it for catharsis. And I think that that's absolutely true. And, uh, you know, I, I, I take that into account all the time with my work and the work that I go and see. What is it about this that draws me back to it? 
And a lot of times it is, it's that power. And, you know, academia aside and, you know, kind of the high and mighty opinion aside, it's also fun. Yeah. Uh, there's something about it. This is one of the only spaces where you can have tomatoes that eat people and be entertained. <laughs> or, you know, the idea that yeah. um, you go and see these things that are awful and understand that it's entertaining. And by awful, I mean, like, say, Halloween 3, where kids are putting on masks that are making their heads explode into bugs. <laughs> if that was happening at your, like, local corner store, you'd be like, oh, no. But, like, <laughs> no. in the context of a movie, you're like, I am hugely entertained right now. Yeah. And so it's like... It's release, and it's release sometimes in a very important way, and then it's release in a very fun way. Yeah. And uh, that's why horror, among many, many other reasons. I think that there's no definitive answer for myself, let alone for anybody, but those are the reasons I return to a lot. Yeah. See, I like, uh, yeah, I love that. And that it is, it's this ongoing conversation and what it's, what purpose it's serving and that catharsis. Absolutely. You know, we talk about that, you know, a lot of times this show, you know, we can get into those like academic areas of like, you know, cultural anxiety and, right. you know, this collective consciousness, like, you know, what's happened to us, tra generational trauma. Absolutely. But then also like we were talking about like satanic panic last night, which is gr like, has a great message, lots of good conversation about, you know, women and, 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 and asking for what you want and what you deserve. But also it was just a really lot of fun, you know, like we just were laughing so hard and like having such a good time while these like <laughs> rich white Satanists are trying to torture <laughs> this girl, this virgin to death, uh, pizza woman person <laughs> to death. Uh, you know, it's like, yeah, it was just a lot of fun. So I think that's actually a good point that nobody else has really made um, yet in, in answer to that question for us, you know, of just how, yeah, it's also a good time. Like yeah. who cares? <laughs> we need that escape. I think yeah. it's really important. We need that, you know, healing, healing happens in laughter, healing happens and yeah. healing happens in many forms. And, and, and that's why I continue to do this. That's why, you know, I, every time I hear those kinds of comments back, you know, like, yeah, the English patient is great. Yeah. All these other things are great, but you know what else? Like there's, horror is very much a genre that I feel is dealing with things that are happening now. Like yes. it feels very present. It's very mm -hmm. immediate. And it's the, and the filmmakers, because of just the nature of the genre, they're just not afraid to go there and just say like, this is what this is going to be about. Or, you know, you, you think of new French extremity and just how, you know, they go to the, you know, they go to take it to the very, nth degree of this but it's like commentary on xyz or what have you so yeah yeah, yeah for yes. sure yeah absolutely uh so i was gonna ask also just kind of moving in a little bit to more of like the niche of like queer horror and where you think you know what's what's the state of queer horror in your opinion? I, I, I had Joshua bring this up because I went to the I went to the queer fear panel uh, at this most recent Comic Con, mm -hmm. and I feel like there that there was like one of the final questions I believe was like, what do you think like the state of uh, asking about like queer horror and you know what are we? A lot happened in the year previous to that panel, and you know things are happening. So well, I guess maybe then we should instead of saying that right now, let's first maybe talk a little bit about like the history a little bit of like, cause you've been doing that panel for how long at Comic-Con? Uh, it's going on seven or eight years now. I think yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. through Prism, right? Yeah. Through Prism, Prism comics okay. uh, is a nonprofit organization that has been 
the panel's sponsor since I started doing it. Uh, prior to me, the panel had been hosted for a year or two by uh, Sean Abley, who also used to do um, the Gay of the Dead column at Fangoria. So there's sort of okay. like a, a proud tradition there. Um, and uh, I, when I took the panel on, uh, I've been running with it for the last few years, and I curate all the guests myself in the discussion. And uh, doing the queer horror panel at Comic-Con actually was a direct causation for the creation of Dead for Filth as well. Mm. Um, but it is something that uh, the discussion of queer horror has been part of the work that I have been doing for a long time. Um, a lot of my roots in the world of horror come from queer places anyway. Uh, but I also, in my travels and work as a filmmaker and writer, uh, I kept running into other creators in the genre who also uh, identified somewhere on the queer spectrum. And I found that there were a lot of commonalities to our stories and a lot of like, you know, differences as well. But there had to, in my mind, be a reason why. And so I wanted to explore that and, ex and, and kind of preserve those histories because I know that as a teenager who was still figuring things out and didn't have those resources, uh, it would have meant a lot to me. Yeah. But why queer horror? Uh, it's funny, I was just telling someone about this the other day. And the thing is, is that queer horror has always existed. Just as queer itself has always been here, right? Queer horror has existed long before cinema, uh, and it's always been part of the genre's DNA. Because, despite what you know, maybe the zeitgeist wants to tell you, horror has always been queer. Because it is, as I said the genre of otherness. Mm -hmm. And who understands that more than queer people? Right. And for this now, I mean, it is interesting. There's sort of a new cycle back around where people are like, oh, this, you know, emerging community of queer horror. This is the year of queer horror. Well, first off, we can't call it the year of queer horror yet because you don't know what the year of anything is until after <laughs> that year has passed. Yeah. Only time will tell. But... This isn't the year of queer horror because horror has always had a queerness to it. This has always been our sandbox. And other people just mistakenly believed that it was that not. That they owned it. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, and, and that is not to take away from the contributions of anybody. I think horror, yeah. horror belongs to everybody. But for that knowledge of, of the history, I mean, and it's just the themes that horror returns to the social messages, the impact and, you know, deep-seated emotion of what that all means. It's something that queer people have always related to. Yeah. And uh, it's been there from the beginning. I, I think that, you know, we look at tent poles like Dracula as being like a, a pillar of, of horror literature, but Dracula doesn't exist without Sheridan Lafanu writing Carmilla. And Carmilla is a lesbian vampire story. And Bram Stoker was a mm. fan of that book. And he brought a lot of what he learned from Carmilla into the writing of Dracula. So Dracula himself does not exist without a lesbian vampire. And that's sort of how the tendrils of queer horror have been throughout. Dracula is just one example of many where that otherness 
was at first direct, then became overt, and then became buried, and now is slowly being unburied and is not overt and is being direct again. It's all in cycles. And uh, horror in, in, in the queer space is something that has power because we get it. Yeah, I, you know it's interesting you say because um, you saw the horror noir documentary. Yeah, I yeah. love that. And I can't remember who it was I um, on there. Was it um, Loretta? What's her name? Um, shoot from Dream Girl, Loretta Divine. Loretta Divine. Oh, I, love I think Loretta it was her Divine. talking. I can't, I can't remember. I wish I say I should have checked this, but this is what happens. You get into the conversation. But she was talking about, or or one of the women that was interviewed in that documentary was like, you know, oh, people are always going, oh, there are no black people in this movie. There's no black people in this movie. Yeah, there are. We're the monster. Right. That's us. Or we're there because we're not. Like you know, the this ominous presence of us. And so I think is that. I feel like it's similarly connected to like the queerness of things, you know? And I would like to jump in and say, because a lot of times when I I do these talks or have these discussions, there's invariably the person that's like, okay, well, so if horror is about otherness and otherness means queer, that some people get upset because they're like, why do we always have to be the monster? And you don't, because otherness isn't always the monster. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, of course, when you look at something like Frankenstein or the creature from the Black Lagoon, the otherness is truly embodied in their alien nature. The Mm -hmm. idea that they are outside of society and shunned by society, and that is an otherness that we can understand. Yeah. But sometimes otherness is a lot more intricate. Otherness is Laurie Strode in Halloween being part of this group of girls, but not really. Yeah. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. she Mm -hmm. is friends with them, but she feels on the outside. She does not feel connected to them because they're popular and they're sexual and they're the things that she wishes she could be, but she's on the outside looking in. And when their world runs up against hers, it's like she's fighting to be seen and ultimately fighting to survive. And so the otherness in horror, it's again, it's taking that thing that we're not willing to address and embodying it in a fantastic way. Yes, sometimes we're the creature from the Black Lagoon, but sometimes we're Laurie. Sometimes we're Sydney. Sometimes we're something else entirely. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's where it comes in. And it, it, that embodiment and that otherness is a queerness, but it's also an outsiderness. And it applies to anybody who feels marginalized because that's, that's how it is represented in, in that lens. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a fantastic uh, reading, and I think because like so many of us grow up with feeling that negative, you know. <sighs> like the stereotypes and think that you do start to, you know, look at it just as the monster and not right. Lori. Like that's a fucking awesome <laughs> reading of that. Um, yeah. You, sh- you need to write that book <laughs> to give you more work yeah, to do, yeah, please. Uh, no, <laughs> no, that's kind of, that's a really fascinating read that I have not uh, heard before. And again, because I think, yeah, we're usually talking more about like the otherness of the monster. And then we're seeing that I feel like, because that's always been like the case, um, you know, at least that's, you know, what we, we talk about so much. And then I think of Disney, how they're doing all these, like, um, behind the villain, like, their mm-hmm. story and how they started off one way and then became the villain, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, like, I the, feel like there's this weird... Because there's that whole thing with, like, you know, a lot of queerness in Disney villains, and then now it's like, oh, we're now we're humanizing them to explain where they got... I don't know. For some, I'm, like, wanting to draw a parallel there of, like... You know, that kind of weird... No, it makes sense. ...way that we're humanizing. But anyways, that's... Yeah, that's a really cool concept I hadn't really thought about. So (laughs) thank you for that. Of course. Um, 
This is why we have guest lecturers. <laughs> exactly. We're, we're all learning here. Cause that's, yeah, that's a really good take. Cause I think, yeah, too often is, but yeah. And for me, I will absolutely say I focus more on the monster and how we want to unpack that, you know, and, you know, especially when you think about like queer or I mean, like straight white guys making a horror film, it's like, Oh, well of course I'm represented in the monster. Right. And not necessarily the young hero of it, you know, cause we just don't, want to think that way about ourselves so that's kind of very um i don't know freeing in a very interesting way so yeah <laughs> mind blown a little bit all right <laughs> oh no i was gonna say i was like i think we'll take a departure so usually you know i always try to derail everything away from horror so um we talked a little bit before we started rolling and in your early parts of your career um and i really want to bring up your uh um, your work with Peaches Christ, and mm-hmm. you know, and then we can I've talk heard a little, of her. Yes, <laughs> we can we can talk about Dragon Drag from that. So, talk a little bit about that, and um, and your work with drag and drag performers, and and uh, tell us tell us a little bit. Yeah, it's wild uh, because drag. I, I was thinking about this the other day. Has kind of been a constant in my career, even though I mean, I'm not a drag performer and have not done it. Uh, Peaches has certainly put me in makeup and I have been creatures and things for her, but uh, I I always say that I'm drag adjacent and it's a a really cool community to be part of in that way. And uh, I I do owe a lot of that to Peaches Christ. Peaches is a, uh, a dear friend of mine who I've known for quite some time. Uh, and you know, a, a very quick summary, we met a, a long time ago. I was writing a book that did not uh, actually ever happen, uh, but it was about the history of late night horror hosts, and I had stumbled upon uh, her website back in kind of like the, the early days of what uh, she was up to in terms of one of the iterations of Midnight Mass, and... Um, I had found her because I was looking to see what the natural extension of late night horror hosts looked like in a post cable, post network affiliate sort of era. And here was this drag queen in San Francisco doing these kind of stage show productions uh, of movies that she hosted and uh, kind of giving the Rocky horror treatment to, to films that were not Rocky horror. And she was attracting the attention of people like John Waters and Elvira. And they were coming to participate in these shows. And I, Loved it. I thought, wow, how awesome. Like, what better way to worship at the altar of a movie than this? Like, the idea that, like, you gather together with your community, you dress up as the film, you cheer on the film, uh, and you're all part of something that's more than just passive watching. And she was doing it, and I thought it was cool. And I reached out to her, and I was like, hey, you know, I saw your website, and I think that it's awesome. I'd like to talk to you. And we got on the phone for this book interview that I was going to do. And I think that we were only supposed to talk for, you know, like 30 minutes. We ended up talking for several hours. Wow. Because we realized that we just had all of these things in common and uh, points of reference, things that we liked. Uh, we, were the, we were the right kind of weird in, in the same ways. And uh, we kept in touch. And I did end up interviewing her for other stuff and... Uh, we talked, and she made her movie all about evil and uh, had asked me to start contributing to her website because they wanted the website to be a more 
uh, fully realized hub for horror and drag fans than just like places to see what Peaches was up to. And so I started writing articles for the site. And then when All About Evil hit the road in its uh, tour de fierce is what it was called, <laughs> uh, I actually went on the road with her. And we would travel to different cities. And in each city, what that entailed was a little different. There would always be like a pre-show and sometimes we had members of the film's cast with us, sometimes we didn't. Sometimes we would connect with local drag queens or Rocky Horror casts or like cult personalities and get them involved in the show. Some weeks I would just watch and other weeks I would, uh, you know, be a Frankenstein monster for her in the show (laughs) because we didn't have anybody else. And all along the way, I wrote a travel log for her. Like, you know, this is what happened to us when we were in Chicago and this is what happened when we performed in Milwaukee and in Georgia and it was sort of we were already friends and we already cared for each other but you know living on the road and like throwing things against the wall to see what would stick and that way was outrageous and it just you know forever bonded us and uh we've always been in touch peaches has introduced me to a lot of people that ended up becoming dear friends of mine and uh the the drag community is is sort of like a, a secondary network of people that i when i travel i look up who are the local queens because i probably know somebody and it's like if i'm by myself on the road doing a horror convention there's always going to be one friendly face somewhere and that all goes back to that and it's I, that has to do with horror movies and it has to do with drag and uh there's a lot about what happened in the early part of my career that is, is directly connected to that adventure. And Peaches is a dear friend of mine and now collaborator. We work on scripts together sometimes. We're, we're working on a new show together. Uh, we've announced a few movies. Um, and uh, we're just always we're talking about nonsense. Uh, you know, we were the right kind of weird to be friends then and we're, we are the right kind of weird to have stayed friends all these years. That's uh, awesome. And I love her very, very much. Uh, and yeah, from that, I have ended up working with and collaborating with and connecting with other drag queens. Uh, you know, I, a number of years ago, I worked on a music video with Chad Michaels there in San Diego. Uh, mm-hmm. your, your, lo- yeah. your local. Our icon. local queen. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've written for. Uh, I, I have done a series of audio dramas that RuPaul was in with Michelle Visage. I've, ri- I've written for yeah, Ru, the, so um, Darkest Night yeah. and Deadly, Manners, the, Deadly uh, Manners. She was in both of them. And so it, it is, you know, drag is a constant in my career. And what's funny is it has, has always kind of found its way to me in my way, like, you know, through horror or like now I'm writing for this murder mystery show and who's going to play the flamboyant fortune teller. Well, it's got to be RuPaul, you know, and it worked <laughs> out. And so, uh, it's just really cool to it's have been perfect. on that journey. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I met the Boulay brothers somewhere along the way in there, and that, that brought me into the Dragula family. Uh, but, obviously, that was a much later portion of the story. So, Very cool. Now, you've talked before about, like, um, Freddy Krueger as a drag Yes, yeah. You know, um, character. I, I'm curious what you think those other intersections are. Like, why why drag and horror seems to like just match? Because I think of like um, obviously Peaches, but like Jackie Beat, and you know, she talks. You know, she was on your show talking about Carrie. But I, I'm curious because I do feel like I see that a lot. Like, where horror and drag. I think the biggest commonality between the world of drag and the world of horror is they're both about heightened reality. Mm -hmm. And taking something that we perceive in the world and kicking it up to 11. And sometimes that something is funny and sometimes that something is scary. 
but it's always bigger than, and it's larger than. And I think that some drag, and, and the core of drag as it began, is there is something political about it too. Mm. By taking this character and being punk rock and you know, throwing a finger up at the system and being like, you don't want to talk about it? Well, I'm going to put on this mask to be my truest self because that's how we're going to talk about it. And in that way, horror and drag have that in common. And uh, they're, they're the punk rock bad kids who want to force you to confront the things that you don't want to confront. And I think that's delicious. And, and that's kind of the, the macro idea. I think the micro idea is, is all about that heightened presentation and about that complete embodiment of otherness and that complete embodiment of character. And that's why, yes, Peaches Christ is a drag queen and uh, you know Jackie Beat is a drag queen, the Boulay brothers are drag queens, but drag is bigger than just gender illusion. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily even what they're doing. And, and that's why Freddy Krueger, Robert England becomes someone entirely different when he puts on Freddy Krueger makeup. It's not Robert England wearing a fedora and a sweater. It's Freddy Krueger. Right. He walks different. He carries himself different. You see there's a theatricality to it. That's drag. That's why Cassandra Peterson is Elvira. Mm-hmm. That's why... Paul Rubens yeah, is Pee Wee Herman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's drag. Absolutely. And drag is, drag is more than drag queens. Drag is just taking an identity and, and kicking it up to this like unbelievable notch. See, you know, we could talk about drag and it's not even, you know, I know. it's we, not off and the it's, off and it's topic. About, yeah, it's not even about, it's, it's yeah, that, that's, that's, I, I appreciate that because, you know, you have, there's definitely those separations. Like I, especially like, you know, we've been to a few cons now where, um, you know, where it's like Cassandra Peterson as Elvira, but you know, she's there as the artist and not as the character. Yeah. Yeah. And those interactions are different because it means different. It means different things. And, um, it's interesting to have these, uh, to form those connections, uh, between, um, especially like, uh, Pee Wee Herman and you know yeah I was like oh yeah they are they are doing these heightened versions and that mm-hmm. are, that have their own life on their own and um, that are that that's different from who they are as people yeah any yeah. character that you can imagine walking into your house and being that character separate from the person who portrays them mm-hmm. Elvira's fully realized if Elvira walked in here right now I would be like oh that's Elvira not oh that's Cassandra Peterson in a wig you know, that's, right. and that's the difference to me. Uh, you know, Peaches Christ is, is a dear friend of mine, but I don't think of Peaches and Joshua as the same person, even though they are. And they are, you know, it, it, it comes from, from that person, but it's what that person brings with their art and, and their performance. And it's, it's awesome. I mean, I think that's really cool. I mean, it's like a living story in a way, so. Yeah, yeah Absolutely. I love it. Well, uh, before we wrap up, we just wanted to cover like what's going on now. What can what can you talk about? What can you tell us about that you're that you're doing that you're up to? Well, I'll give you the natural segue. You mentioned Dragula, and mm-hmm. Dragula is sort of the perfect intersection of horror and drag, and you know, filth and glamour and all of <laughs> yes. those things. Uh, so I I joined on board of the third season of Dragula, which just recently debuted uh, here stateside on Amazon Prime as an Amazon. Ex- 
Prime exclusive, and it is in international territories on Out TV. Uh, and I had been talking to the Boulay brothers for actually off and on for a couple years about uh, participating in the show, and we just like it was just uh, you know a matter of timing, and. Uh, I am both a writer and director on the show, and what that means is every episode of Dragula opens with a mini horror movie or a vignette that kind of gives you a glimpse into the world of the Boulets uh, outside of the reality competition. And it's usually, uh, in, in seasons past, it's been homages to horror movies or something like tonally that they wanted to like suggest. And this season, they brought me in to write and direct all of the horror intros. So all of the horror intros that open at uh, season three, I uh, was involved in and I directed or wrote. Uh, but then I ended up staying on into the show, and uh, I also have written a lot of other segments of the show that occur during the reality uh, portions. And uh, I have, without any spoilers, I did end up directing... Uh, some of the reality segments as well because of um, just different circumstances. So uh, my writing and directing are woven all throughout this season and it was a real joy to be part of. It was really cool to see all the competitors bring what they brought. And no matter how fierce it looks on TV, and it does, like literally when you're standing in front of some of those performers and seeing what they bring, it's next level in person. Like yeah. we, every, every, the, the whole shoot was... A long. It was several months of work, but there was not a, a day that went by where we were not collecting our jaws off the floor from some of the things that we saw. I mean, this is a fierce group of of competitors, and uh, I, I was really, you know, the, their commitment to horror and their commitment to drag and the competition was just so amazing to see. And I'm glad that I got to uh, write for them and direct them and be part of that and part of this amazing world that the Boulets curate. Uh, it's just so cool. And I'm lucky uh, enough to also say that I'm a guest judge this season. Yes. Oh, cool. Um, on episode four, which as of the time of this recording, I believe is the next episode up, yeah. uh, Darren Stein, director of Jawbreaker, and I uh, are the guest judges, and we join the Boulets for some very difficult decisions. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was cool. It was cool to bring uh, my connections to the world of drag and my work in the world of horror as a filmmaker to this season uh, and, and kind of see them all come together in that way so yeah that show is extreme like they put, <laughs> they put those uh competitors those contestants you know through through some shit <laughs> oh i mean and believe me if you were wincing at home uh there were a lot of times that i was standing very nearby and watching it all in person and thinking well I now can cross that off my list. <laughs> <laughs> this is where it's like, um, in for a penny, in yeah. in for a pound. Because yeah, I think wasn't the very first episode of the first season I remember watching, they like put them in like in a dark box and threw bugs on them and like mm -hmm. liquid. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, they're just in there like I have no idea what's going on. Somebody's pissing on me, there's <laughs> bugs. And I'm like, Well, you don't see that on Drag Race. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> yeah. to Dragula. Yes. <laughs> Um, and you also have um, you have some shorts that are out now um, that are on the that you're working the festival circuit as well, right? Yes. So I have a short out on the festival circuit right now called "The Office Is Mine," and it is a queer horror short, uh, and it is about a guy who works in a corporate office building and his whole cachet is that he's the only gay in the office. And when he discovers that they've hired another gay, his whole like world falls apart because. <laughs> Now, like, you know, what, what, what am I? And he, uh, he loses it. And it is uh, born out of the idea that um, gay men are often territorial with one another, 
when in fact we should be working together and raising each other up. And yes. a lot of the work that I do uh, when I when it comes to queer horror is exploring these things that happen in our community that we don't talk about. And uh, I actually recently, and this is a good segue to discuss that, I formed a production company with my production partner, uh, Brandon Kirby, called June Gloom Productions. And uh, The Office is Mine was the first film that we made under that banner, but we've done a few more since. And the whole point of June Gloom is to uh, curate queer horror stories and queer social commentary pieces. And... uh, the Office is Mine was the result of uh, a series of conversations I had had with the lead actor of that and co-producer, Ben Bauer. Uh, ben and I were trying to find a project to work on, and he actually was the one who came to me with the, with the concept of a guy at the office who can't stand that they hired another gay. And I was like, oh, give me some time. And when I, <laughs> yeah. and when I came back with the script, it was all like, you know, it went to the, all the dark places that I go. Uh, and it is out in the world. It stars Ben Bauer and Chris Salvatore and Sarah Nicklin, who a lot of horror fans know. And uh, it is currently playing at a lot of festivals. We're very lucky. Uh, very cool. It's been it, it's programmed at festivals in Pittsburgh and Atlanta and New Orleans. It played uh, here in in uh, Long Beach, uh, New York. I mean, I'm I'm forgetting places left and right, but it's mm-hmm. it's it's just like rolling out right now. And uh, the UK, it's playing in Cambridge uh, at, at the beginning of October. I'm very excited about it, and uh, I'm, I'm really happy with it. It's a different kind of horror film in the way that it's all about kind of the the, the passive-aggressive terrors that happen in our day-to-day life. Uh, so that's out in the world right now. Uh, we also just wrapped a project called A Halloween Trick, uh, which I've talked about a little loosely, but I haven't really... Um, announced in, in much press. So this will be one of one of the first places. Uh, a Halloween Trick was uh, a is a Halloween short that is a queer horror piece that uh, Deku, the streaming platform, had approached Brandon and I uh, about doing a horror project. And we had been going back and forth with them. And uh, at some point along the way, we we're like, well, what if we created like a Halloween exclusive that you could drop with your October block of programming, which was amb- ambitious at the time. And then we realized, oh, sure, we have to do this. <laughs> uh, and I had a couple ideas uh, uh, kind of going back and forth, but I kept landing on this one about... Uh, a guy who lives in a, in a West Hollywood type neighborhood who's sort of a, a disrespectful neighbor and he and his neighbor have a missed communication uh, that occurs over the nights leading up to Halloween night. And it's sort of a boy who cried wolf story. And on Halloween, he brings home the wrong guy and no one believes him. And uh, it, stars, I, it stars Ben Bauer. I brought Ben back because he's such a joy to work with. And it also reunites me with Tiffany Shepis, horror icon. Uh, so Tiffany and Ben play the, the neighbors at odds with one another. And uh, I have a couple other people uh, from the queer space. Matt Piscua, who is recently in a short called Faces. And Danny Plotner, who YouTube fans are very familiar with. And then the killer, our masked killer, is played by Sean Keller, uh, who uh, wrote John Carpenter's The Ward and Dario Argento's Giallo. And uh, we wrapped on that recently, and it will be out on Deku in October. And it's very bloody and super gay. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> I think that We're here for it. people will uh, like it. You, you ain't never seen a killer like this before, I'll say that. Oh, that's exciting. And then also, um, yeah, it's keep keeping up with my holiday streak, I have a... Um, 
segment in the upcoming international holiday horror anthology December. My segment is called All Sales Fatal, and it, it takes place at a gift exchange counter during the holidays. And what happens when you don't have your receipt? Uh, and it stars <laughs> Tiffany Shepis. Period enough said, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it stars Tiffany Shepis, uh, who I uh, am old friends with and love working with, clearly. Uh, also, Ryan Fisher from American Horror Story, and Final Destination creator Jeffrey Reddick is in it as well. And uh, it's very bloody and uh, really, when I set out to do that, I just wanted to make the third act of War of the Roses at a department store. <laughs> and uh, I, I feel like that worked out. So yeah, it's been a very busy year because I wrote and directed 10 episodes of Dragula uh, or co-directed 10 episodes of Dragula. And I did The Office is Mine. Uh, I did a Halloween Trick. And we did All Sales Fatal all within this year. And we also, it, through June Gloom, produced uh, Is This a Date, which was written and directed by Brandon Kirby, my production partner, which is a, uh, is a queer comedy. Um, so there's always stuff going on. Um, I did also have a Lifetime movie come out this year called The Wrong Stepmother. With Vivica A. Fox. With the Vivica A. Fox. <laughs> the Vivica A. Fox. Uh, and th- <laughs> honestly, I, was re- like, I, I wrote that kind of as a horror movie as well. And what was funny is people thought it was so outrageous. Lifetime aired it again the same week with a different cut in an alternate ending, and they never do that. So oh, it was like, wow. really cool. That and is I, cool. I'm working on another movie that will tentatively be produced by her. I can't say much about that at the moment. And I do have another Lifetime thriller that was shot earlier this year that I think is coming out in November called The Night Nanny. Uh, please keep your eye on local listings. I don't know specifically when and if that's that's happening. Joel now. So, Joel yeah. Oh, I, I, no. I, I grew up, my my aunt who, who babysat us uh, during the summers growing up was a guiding light, days of our lives, Quincy, the Equalizer, and whatever Lifetime movie was on. Well, I gotta tell you, I love Days of Our Lives, but for like a narrow window, because uh, there was a period from, I mm-hmm. believe, 1994 to about 98, where the lead writer <laughs> of Days of Our Lives was like, I don't know what is gonna keep the show on the air, because it's literally just like affairs and like rich white women, and right. like yes. after 50 years, we gotta do something. And he just leaned hard into yep. horror. Yeah. And it started with like <laughs> Vicky, uh, uh, Vivian burying Carly alive, and that was like a summer plot line, and then Marlena gets possessed by the devil, which is one of the coolest <laughs> yes. things to ever happen on daytime television. And then they also <laughs> had a, a, sl- a slasher storyline, and all of that happened under this guy's watch. I unfortunately don't know his name off the top of my head, but he also created Passions, so Passions uh. Yes, because yeah. uh, ta- Passion says Tabitha and the doll that comes to life. And yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. When I was a kid and like, <laughs> and you had like, you know, Auntie Rita, she had to have, you know, the TV during this time because that's when the stories were on. And I remember mm-hmm. Stefano. Oh my God. I remember <laughs> Stefano like, you know, there with Marle- Mar- Marlena as the devil chained up in the, in her silk pajamas, chained to the bed. <laughs> and, well, like, she's still a rich white lady. Yeah, she's still a rich white lady. And then like, like you know, you had John come back as uh, as a priest, and you know, and and then and when Marlena would speak, it was it was like a vocoder of like oh, hello, blah, 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 like <laughs> type of voice. And I'm sorry when you because I yeah I'm no, all about I'm a huge fan, yeah. and I have to say that like you know I've been very fortunate. I have got to work with so many amazing performers over the course of my career. I like really want for nothing in the way that like most of my my heroes I've gotten to work with and I've even brought people out of retirement but because of the Marlena possession storyline it is like a, a goal of mine at some point to get Deidre Hall who played yes. Marlena 
into a horror movie, if even just like, because I know she's still on days. I'm sure that her schedule is like crazy. But I'm just like, come do like a, a day shoot where you're like the matriarch of some gothic castle or something. Yeah. I just want to like bring her back to that world just one more time. Oh, please. Yeah. That'd be amazing. Um, yes. I'm sorry. I just like. <laughs> no. No, it's great. Because like, we didn't really get to talk about it. Because I, I just find it fascinating. Like, you know, like your lifetime movie career. And then like the horror. I'm like, this is so amazing. The, the, uh, I mean, you know, it's horror in a different sense. But right. like the. <laughs> Days of Our Lives, the Marlena, the Marlena possessed by the devil storyline was just like it's one of the formative things of my childhood. I believe it was the summer of 1996. Please, yes. listeners, <laughs> grab your Wikipedia and dig yes, in. find yeah. it, find, find it. it somewhere, and it's because it's nuts, and it went on forever. Yeah, <laughs> it was amazing. I feel like you know, seasons passed, children were born, <laughs> yeah, people exactly. died. <laughs> well, Marlena was possessed. buried alive was great too. Yeah. Like it's like in the coffin. Like yeah, it was fine. a where were you? That I always call it like a where were you when moment in TV history. Like because we don't really have those as much as we we did. Yeah. Because now with digital and streaming, everyone kind of like has fact off to watch the things that they want to watch yeah. but there were things even if you weren't watching these shows it was sort of like I remember it's like where were you when Marlena got possessed <laughs> like because like all of a sudden you're there like talking to like your like teachers about it like I also remember when Kimberly blew up the apartment building on Melrose Place I was shook to my core <laughs> and I went to school the next day and my English teacher was like blah 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 she's like what did you do last night and I was like I watched Melrose Place and she was like oh. and then like she she like you could tell she hadn't talked to so here I am like a 14 and this like middle-aged woman's just like did you expect that at all and we're like digging in we're like well I don't know if Michael Mancini is going to survive this and it was just like it's amazing that's awesome I had that with X-Files and a teacher the same thing like I, I have like memories of talking with oh, her X-Files was so yeah. good for that yeah. kind of stuff too yeah and I was one of the few kids that was probably like watching that you know because I, I didn't have a lot of friends that watched were allowed to watch like horror and stuff and then we stayed up you know as family so yeah it's so funny because yeah, yeah I have that distinct memory too of like talking about like teachers oh did who, you see the season finale <laughs> yeah teachers who talk to students about these shows you are national treasures Ab- absolutely so where can people find you if they want to come looking for you where are you on on the uh, interwebs on um, your twitters or your instagrams I'm pretty easily found on the internet mostly due to the fact that uh, I grabbed my name early on in the social media mm-hmm. gold rush uh, no it's Michael Verratti that's V as in Victor A-R-R-A-T-I I'm at Michael Verratti on Twitter. I'm at Michael Verratti on Instagram. Um, you can add me on Facebook, but I'm going to be honest. I've only got log on there to promote stuff. So Insta and Twitter are the best places. Also, my show Dead for Filth, the place for all things queer horror and beyond, can be found on uh, Twitter at Dead for Filth, as well as wherever podcasts are found. Um, you can hear me jawing weekly when we come back from hiatus with creators uh, across the horror space and... Um, yeah, so that's it. Like, I'm around, probably much to the chagrin of some <laughs> and, de- and delight no, of others. Yes. So. <laughs> well, definitely to our delight, and it has been truly delightful to have you here. Uh, so glad to have, like, a mind-blown moment. That's awesome. And uh, I watched your mind get blown, <laughs> and that was, that was great because, you know, you, as the, as the professor of right, fright yeah, school, yeah, yeah, and then yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, wow, he's, we're going to talk yeah. about this on the ride home. No, yeah. definitely. And <laughs> yeah. have all kinds of new analyses to apply to things. But, yeah, so thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your uh, incredibly busy schedule to uh to hang with us in thank you in your cool space it is uh it is my pleasure uh all righty well joe good night good night
Fright School is produced by Joshua Napier and Joe Farron. Our intro was edited by Davy Boy Productions. Our logo was designed by Jamie Channel Guzman. Episodes are edited and engineered by Joe Farron. Fright School is produced in terrifyingly beautiful San Diego, California. Geekscape Network.